strap yourselves in, people. This is going to be a long one. The British National Antarctic Expedition is the final of the four voyages with origins lying in the 6th Geographical Congress. Between 1893 and 1896, Sir John Murray pressed that any expedition south should concentrate on science, proposing two civilian-led parties ashore. But Sir Clements Markham, unhappy that Murray's model reduced the Navy to the logistics role, pressed his hand for naval leadership. The late 19th century saw the international tensions that eventually led to the First World War on the rise, and the Admiralty refused to countenance a glory-seeking expedition under their aegis. Any expedition that headed south for the sake of going south would necessarily be a civil affair. The Royal Society attempted to get a magnetic observations expedition underway in 1897, and, given the direct applicability of such research to naval interests, the Admiralty were keen but the magnificently named Prime Minister, Robert Arthur Talbot Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquis of Salisbury, intervened to prevent the expedition getting traction. When Markham started assembling resources for a private expedition, the government could only be relied on to provide scientific instruments via the Navy. On Markham's advice that a lack of government support for an expedition south might show a lack of scientific will and exploratory spirit in light of the recently announced German expedition, Arthur Balfour, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, agreed to stump up £45,000 of parliamentary funding if matching funds could be sourced elsewhere. Sir Clement set about securing the money and by late 1898 the kitty held £12,000, with £5,000 arising from the Royal Geographic Society and £7,000 from the public subscriptions. In March 1899, Llewellyn Longstaff, an industrialist whose fortune arose from the manufacture of linseed oil for use in paints and a member of the Royal Geographic Society, donated £25,000. This gave Markham some momentum and his constant work to push the project forward eventually garnered the approval of Queen Victoria and the patronage of her son, Edward the Prince of Wales. This leverage encouraged a final wave of donations. The government funding was secured, and with it, a promise of some officers and sailors through the Admiralty. When all found, the funding drive netted £92,000. The Royal Society, having watched the Royal Geographic Society, read Markham, bring the funds together, tried to apply their long and prestigious history as a lever by which to insert a scientist as expedition leader, specifically geologist John Walter Gregory namer of the Great Rift Valley and experienced Arctic explorer. Markham, while friends with Gregory, considered scientists a handbrake to exploration, resenting their unstinting request to stop and collect or measure things. He labelled them mudlarkers, a reference to the people scraping together a life by scavenging river mud for lost valuables, and set to task ensuring the role of expedition leader fell to a naval candidate. In his book, Scott of the Antarctic, Published in 2005, David Crane notes Markham's unrivalled capacity for self-serving, misrepresentation, scurrilities, slanders, snobberies, affectations, infatuations and vindictiveness. Crane also notes balancing traits of chivalry, hatred of cruelty, largeness of imagination and loyalty to friends, but these positives may have been lost on those thrown under the bus in Markham's drive to see his naval vision realised. In his mid-sixties at this point, Sir Clement still possessed the vision, energy and persistence to harry his opponents to acquiescence, submission or, 
as his correspondence regularly recorded with apparent glee, resignation. Markham's already noted opposition to the use of dogs as a means of transport arose from two sources. His abhorrence of unnecessary suffering, in any entity not standing between him and his goals, fed his horror at Robert Peary's crossing of Greenland, wherein the weakest dogs were killed and fed to those still pulling their weight, and all but one of the overworked animals died. His taste for chivalry and pointless personal heroism fueled his preference that men should shoulder their own burdens. This sentiment, common enough at the time, died the death in the trenches of the First World War, but to Markham's Britain, patriotic self-negation made a lot of sense. Sir Clements paid close attention to the young naval officers of the day, making copious notes about the family history, achievements and future prospects of those young men who might one day fulfil his vicarious ambitions. He first encountered Robert Falcon Scott in 1887, when the future Antarctican still served as a midshipman, the lowest rung on the Admiralty Officers' Ladder. Scott lacked the knobby background of many of his classmates passing their cadet ships aboard the training vessel Britannia. In Cook's day, or even Ross's era, this would not have counted much against him, but in the years since the defeat of Napoleon, outright British naval supremacy meant the navy lacked for battles by which to maintain its sharp edges. The Pax Britannica didn't last as long as its Roman predecessor and received many deaths, such as the Crimean War, but it eased the pressure on the navy to excel in combat and saw a reversion from the meritocracy that allowed commoners such as James Cook to rise to greatness back to an oligarchy, where whom your father's father's mother fucked determined whether or not you landed the plum roll on the royal yacht, or how quickly you proceeded past the captaincy hurdle. The Camperdown tragedy offers an illustration of how the Victorian Navy worked, or failed to work. In 1887, off the coast of Syria on manoeuvres with the Mediterranean fleet, Captain Albert Markham, cousin to Sir Clements and in charge of HMS Vernon during Scott's time there, obeyed an order he recognised could only lead to a collision. This resulted in his vessel, the Camperdown, ramming and sinking the HMS Victoria, killing Admiral Sir George Tyson and 357 crew. Duty to authority and tradition outweighed practical considerations. The resulting court-martial exonerated the crew of the victory over the loss of their ship and determined that it would be fatal to the interests of the service to say that he, Albert Markham, was to blame for carrying out the directions of the Commander-in-Chief in person. Albert Markham sought his own court-martial to ensure his name was clear of any blight, but his superiors advised he just get on with his career, which led to a gradual promotion to Admiral and a knighthood. Sink ship. Receive bacon. Robert Falcon Scott's father owned a brewery, but laziness and ready access to alcohol saw him sell the business and die relatively young, leaving his wife and six children in tight financial straits. Robert, the third child of six, entered the Navy at the age of 13, and throughout his career sought the opportunities offering the greatest scope to help him keep his mother and sisters in their accustomed comfort. Self-negation for the sake of duty is Scott's leitmotif. Scott passed his exams to become a sub-lieutenant in 1888 and served on several ships, gaining his sea time and angling for advancement. The process of mechanisation in the Navy offered Scott an opportunity to specialise into a newly developed field. 
he spent two years on a torpedo course through HMS Vernon, becoming highly proficient in the technology. But this nod to the future offers echoes of a disjunct in his personal narrative. In the final years of the 19th century, the Royal Navy underwent a dramatic revolution led by Jackie Fisher. Fisher recognised the naval arms race that culminated in the dreadnoughts and the complacent Royal Navy of the Pax Britannica, wherein wardroom discussions focused on the best method by which to bring a ship's bright work to a fine, shiny finish necessitated rapid change. Fisher's revolution brought about the Navy Britain needed in the 20th century, wherein wardroom discussions focused on tactics and strategy. Scott felt an affinity for the technology of the latter, but a duty to the traditions and mores of the former. Scott saw Sir Clements Markham's polar ambitions as a means to break free of the limitations of his social standing and to meet his familial obligations, while negating the monotonous routines of peacetime life in the Royal Navy, and in 1899 put himself forward, on Markham's recommendation, as a candidate for the leadership role. Chivalrous and dutiful, Scott became Markham's golden child. The Admiralty figured that if even experienced whaling captains couldn't accurately predict every shift in the ice, inexperience in polar conditions constituted less of a handicap than in other circumstances. But Scott, thrown into already contentious circumstances, drew heavy criticism from the Royal Society's favourite, John Gregory, who considered Scott's complete dearth of polar knowledge a major shortcoming. The Boxer Rebellion made the Admiralty reticent to release naval officers and sailors to the expedition, but by April 5, 1900, Scott and Lieutenant Charles Royds were confirmed as available. Markham set £50,000 of the expedition funds to the construction of a purpose-built ship. The Discovery The first British ship built specifically for scientific investigation since Halley's Paramour in the 17th century. The magnetic measurements slated as part of the scientific observations of the expedition necessitated a wooden hull, modern steel hulls causing too great a degree of deviation in magnetic instruments. But the modernisation of the British naval and merchant fleets made shipyards with the skills and materials to build a wooden vessel few and far between. Colin Archer, the shipwright behind the Fram, was considered for the role, having the large stocks of appropriately seasoned wood on hand and the skills needed on tap. But patriotism drew the line at hiring the Norwegian Scotsman and the contract fell to a shipyard in Dundee, construction being overseen by Lieutenant Reginald Skelton, chosen as chief engineer for the expedition based on Scott's experience of him while serving aboard HMS Majestic. Markham wanted an entirely naval expedition, but Alfred Harmsworth, a donor to the tune of £5,000, pushed him to enlist Merchant Service Lieutenant Albert Armitage and Dr Reginald Kirtlitz, whose respective experiences as second-in-command of, and surgeon to, the Jackson-Harmsworth expedition in Franz Josef Land, gave the expedition an ice pilot and a polar medicine expert to allay some of the concerns directed at Scott's inexperience in polar work. Markham travelled to Norway to sail with Fritjof Nansen, in whose company he realised how far behind the cutting edge the Royal Navy had become in hydrography and oceanography. He sent for Scott, who took time out from his preparations to join Nansen and learn as much as he could from him, but his notes from the period read as someone cramming for an exam after missing every class. Scott lacked the grounding required to make sense of the state-of-the-art in these fields, 
and while his curiosity about all matters scientific could have seen him become proficient to the point he could share Nansen's knowledge with others, the time available simply did not allow it, leaving Scott alarmed at the newly recognised gaps in his skills and experience. While in Europe, Markham spent time with Drygalski and found himself bitterly awed by the autonomy Scott's German counterpart enjoyed in his own preparations. This envy must have been felt all the more keenly when Llewellyn Longstaff presented 3rd Lieutenant Ernest Shackleton of the Merchant Service for consideration. Shackleton impressed Longstaff's son while on a Union Castle Line voyage. Already knocked back for a role in the expedition, Shackleton pressured that he be granted an interview with Albert Armitage, and the Longstaff connection paid off. Armitage recommended Shackleton to Scott, who placed him in charge of stores, holds, and deep-sea water analysis. Naval reticence about exploration at the time forced the expedition to operate under the Merchant Shipping Act, and this additional merchant officer was thought likely to prove helpful in negotiating the interface between the naval and merchant traditions and standards. With the Navy rapidly mechanising regardless of expense, where the merchant service sought to optimise profits, Shackleton also brought more first-hand experience operating under square-rigged sail than Scott and Royds could claim. William Wharton, sitting on the joint committee overseeing the expedition, felt incensed that Markham appointed Scott the expedition leader without consulting anyone. With six in support of Sir Clements and six in opposition, the committee lay at deadlock. Fortunately for Markham, two dissenters missed a meeting during which the matter stood to be resolved by vote, and the Markham majority secured Scott's position. Geologist John Gregory returned from time spent in Australia fully expecting to take charge of the expedition, operating under the impression that he would head the shore party while Scott wintered in Melbourne. After much jockeying and calling in of political favours by both sides of the science, Navy Stoush, Markham eventually sent Gregory an ultimatum by Mimo. Take a second seat to Scott or hop it. Gregory resigned the chief scientist position in Dudgeon, though later considered the expedition a fiasco well avoided. Markham, in securing first violin for his golden child, lost the expedition the most experienced polar scientist available, if you discount William Spears Bruce, which Markham did, as discussed in episode 27. The expedition's scientific plan, when finally settled, focused on magnetic, meteorological, oceanographic, geological and biological observations and sampling. Targeting the Ross Sea, Scott was instructed to take the discovery as far toward the barrier as possible, and there seek a safe anchorage for the winter, laying cans at prearranged sites to help a relief ship find the expedition the following summer. A prefabricated hut would serve as the shore base from which to mount sledging journeys to either the South Pole or the South Magnetic Pole. By August 1901, the increasingly frenetic preparations came to their head and the Discovery sailed to Cowes on the Isle of Wight, where she received a visit from the expedition patron, King Edward VII, the former Prince of Wales having received a promotion on the death of his mother, Queen Victoria. The Discovery departed Cowes on the 8th of August. Early in the transit, the ship exhibited a tremendous hunger for coal and less surface area of sail than she might safely unfurl. Scott noted them as handkerchiefs in a letter to his mother, the description serving both to set her mind at ease over his safety in the Atlantic and to mark his frustration at the poor average speed the sails afforded. 
on the 31st of August, the Dundee Lake started up. The Dundee Lake is the name the crew gave to the elusive and unstoppable ingress of water no one should have to put up with in a brand new ship. The Discovery, built with icework in mind, featured a very strong cross-planking hull structure wherein successive layers of oak boards lay at angles over one another. This gave the hull tremendous strength but made tracking down the source of the leak impossible while at sea. The pumps came under heavy use to keep the bilges of the heavily laden vessel clear. In addition to concerns over their speed and the leak, Scott found difficulty maintaining discipline among the merchant contingent of the crew, finding their independence at odds with his experience of and leadership style regarding the management of sailors. After a drunken melee in which the thumb of Walker, a Dundee whaler, was bitten through to the bone, this disjunct led to an impasse only diffused by Shackleton's intervention. While entirely supportive of his captain and working only in the interests of the expedition, Shackleton's involvement rankled Scott, offering an example of Scott's petulant anger in the face of frustrating circumstances. The impasse resolved, though. Scott's interactions at the interface between the naval and merchant realms ran more smoothly thereafter. He was not so hidebound as to not learn by his experiences. John Marden, the merchantman at the heart of the drunken melee, was discharged in South Africa. While Scott brooded en route to the Cape about the retribution they might bring down on Marden, he relented and deemed police involvement unnecessary. The discovery, still leaking, made its transit to New Zealand on a great circle, taking advantage of the winds available to the south. On this route, they reached the edge of the pack ice, where a number of seabirds were caught for the attention of the expedition's assistant surgeon and ornithologist, Dr Edward Wilson, before transiting to Littleton in New Zealand. There, on the 30th of November, they received a warm welcome from the locals and a physicist in the form of Louis Bernacki, prominent in episode 23's account of the British Antarctic Expedition under Borkrovink. While the crew enjoyed the New Zealand hospitality and the sled dogs received a workup on Quail Island, the ship went on the slip in an attempt to chase down the Dundee leak, but it proved elusive. The ship set out again on the 21st of December to much hullabaloo, but the death of seaman Charles Bonner, who fell from the rigging while trying to reach the highest possible point from which to wave back at the adoring crowds, marred the moment. The discovery put in at Port Chalmers where the crew buried Bonner's remains. Robert Sinclair, suspected of giving Bonner whiskey while aloft, and thereby contributing to his death, jumped ship, being replaced by seaman Thomas Crean. Crean, from County Kerry, Ireland, joined the Royal Navy at 15, and transferred to the Discovery from the HMS Ringaruma, part of the Australia Station Fleet. Watch that seaman. Crean plays an important part in many landmark stories of the heroic age. On the 2nd of January 1902, the Discovery encountered icebergs at 65 degrees 30 minutes south, and on the 9th of January reached Cape Adair, where a landing party put ashore to cache messages at Borkrovink's huts. Another message cache went ashore at Cape Crozier while the expedition made a transit to the east, following the barrier. They sighted mountains, naming the eastern margin of the Ross Sea Edward VII Land. Parties put ashore on the barrier. 
Armitage and Benaki, the only two aboard with sledging experience, took a team of six sledging to 79 degrees, three minutes south, to make a new southern record, and Scott made the first balloon ascent in Antarctica on the 4th of February. The hydrogen balloon, on loan from the Army, made a second ascent with Shackleton, who took the first aerial photographs of Antarctica. While the gas cylinders required to fill the 4,000 cubic foot, reportedly leaky contraption, took up a lot of cargo space on the deck, no one involved in the flight seemed terribly happy with the unfamiliar equipment, and a second balloon remained in storage for the rest of the expedition. Scott named that part of the barrier Balloon Bite. Convinced that this area of the barrier, at least, lay on land, this site became a bone of contention between Scott and Shackleton in light of later events. It was during this period in the Ross Sea that Edward Wilson, among others, made a note in his diary over the frustrations caused by Scott's unwillingness to expand on his intentions. Orders to prepare to make a landing or to set to work on a particular set of observations came without warning, often taking the crew by surprise. Wilson would later come to be one of Scott's closest friends and confidants, but early in their association, the qualities of his leadership were still under assessment. The Discovery sailed west again, and the expeditioners established their winter quarters at a small embayment on the southern shore of Ross Island. This site became known as Hut Point, and the peninsula on which it lay, Hut Point Peninsula. They erected their wooden hut and two instrument huts, but with the ship at hand and already made as cosy as possible, no one moved house. The Discovery Hut remained a lowly, freezing storehouse and a performance space for the duration of the expedition. Wilson, Shackleton and expedition geologist Hartley Ferrer took a sledge out to White Island for the first full test of the tents, stoves, skis, sledging rations and sleeping gear. Much of their equipment came aboard on the recommendations of Fritjof Nansen, but the Brits never became familiar with its use prior to sailing, so the strengths and limitations of each article became a matter of trial and error on site. They found the sledging rations too rich, requiring a reformulation, and the wolf and reindeer sleeping suits were deemed too difficult to don and doff, the three-man sleeping bags being preferred. The skiing system, considered state-of-the-art at the time, appears odd to modern eyes, with a single, very long stock held in both arms, where we now expect two shorter versions, one per hand. A second sledge journey headed west across the southern shores of Ross Island, making for Cape Crozier, to update the message case with their base location and notes on the scientific and exploration progress to date. Led by Lieutenant Charles Royds and 2nd Lieutenant Michael Barn, deep snow and constant fighting among the dogs kept their progress slow. Figuring a party of three might travel more quickly, Royds carried on with Reginalds, Skelton and Kurtlitz, sending Barn back with the rest of the party after a week. Barn aimed for Castle Rock, a prominent volcanic extrusion emerging above the snow and ice on the ridge of Hut Point Peninsula. While approaching the ridge, the weather broke. The team set about setting up camp, but the winds became too strong to handle the tents. With Castle Rock lying so close to Hut Point that it's now a recreational trail destination for residents at McMurdo Station, Barn decided to abandon the equipment and make a bolt for the discovery but blowing snow led to disorientation, and the team, 
thinking they were still traversing the southern margin of the ridge, actually worked their way onto the northern face. Those in the party wearing boots managed the icy surface well enough, but those in the warmer finesco, reindeer fur boots lined with senegrass, experienced trouble keeping their feet. With Barn urging everyone to keep in close contact in the poor visibility, they pressed forward. Clarence Hare, a steward taken aboard in New Zealand, went missing, and Barn fanned the party out to begin a search. Petty Officer Edgar Taffy Evans, a naval physical training instructor who, like Crean, will play a significant role in future narratives, lost his footing and slid downhill out of sight. Barn launched himself after Evans, thinking the slope short, as per most of the local foothills, but he shot downhill for a frighteningly long time. He came to rest near Evans in a bank of soft snow, joined shortly after by Stoker Arthur Quartley, who also lost his footing. Realising they couldn't climb the icy slope they just rode down, they started west again, but found their path back to Discovery blocked by a sheer cliff. As they stood and contemplated their close shave with death, a dog from the uphill party shot past them and out into open space and its doom. Seaman Frank Wilde, yet another name with long Antarctic legs, took charge of the five men remaining uphill. All five slid on slick ice, and the four in boots managed to arrest their descent, but George Vince, in Finesco, slid onward and out over a cliff. Wilde and his three companions traversed the slope to a rocky outcrop that led them onto a safer aspect, allowing them to reach the discovery and sound the alarm. A shore-based search party headed out under Armitage, and a longboat under Shackleton combed the shoreline on the northern side of the Hut Point Peninsula, finding no sign of Vince. Three hours later, Hartley Ferrer brought in Quartley, Evans and Barnes, who suffered bad frostnip to his hands. The tragedy gave the expedition a shake-up. No one thought operating in Antarctica was a doddle, but that an apparently competent team of mostly naval stock came badly unstuck in a matter of minutes during a sudden but far from uncommon change in conditions caused a solemn reassessment of how to go about every aspect of their activities. The tragedy was halved two days later, when Hare showed up. He fell down on the traverse, went unconscious, and the drifting snow covered and insulated him. He spent 36 hours buried this way before recovering enough to walk back, hungry, but otherwise fine. Royds, Kurtlitz and Skelton couldn't reach Cape Crozier, returning to the ship several days later. The sun set for the expedition on the 23rd of April, not rising again for four whole months. Through the winter dark, Shackleton applied his typewriter to the production of the first Antarctic newspaper, the small print run but high circulation South Polar Times. The hut played host to various entertainments, and the science program kept ticking along. Skelton devised sledge meters to measure distances travelled over ice, an essential element in dead reckoning navigation when out of sight of landmarks. The windmill used to generate electricity was damaged in one storm and wrecked in a subsequent blow, but otherwise, the winter months aboard the Discovery passed with a degree of equanimity equal to that experienced on the Gauss. Much credit for this is given to Scott's leadership, some even by vehement detractors. On the 2nd of September, 
four dog teams headed across the ice to Turtle Island, rehearsing their roles for the planned journeys across the barrier. On the 10th, Royds, Kurtlitz, Evans, Wilde and Chief Stoker William Lashley headed to Cape Royds to make good on the previous attempt to update the message cache, reporting the Emperor Penguin colony they found there to the tremendous interest of Dr Wilson. Well-developed chicks in the spring indicated a winter nesting period for the species. Armitage, at the same time, led a party to the west to reconnoitre approaches to the interior of Victoria land. Skelton sledge meters worked admirably and the sledging teams became adept at packing their equipment quickly and practically and gradually came to understand how to work their dogs effectively. On the 17th of September, Scott, Shackleton and Barn set off with 13 dogs to lay a 500-pound depot at Minna Bluff, south of White Island, and named after Sir Clement's wife. Pinned down by a blizzard, the team returned to the discovery after two days. Barn experienced trouble with his hands, the frost damage of the Castle Rock tragedy having left him susceptible to further exposure, though Skelton and Hodgson muttered darkly about Shackleton as a possible weak link in the project. Shackleton, while popular among the Mestec, respected by Scott, and quickly forming a close friendship with Edward Wilson, was not universally liked. Some found his tendency to quote poetry by the yard a bit showy, and diary entries questioning his integrity arise in several accounts. He didn't hesitate to head out again, though, in company with Scott and Thomas Feather, the bosun. The trio steered between White and Black Islands, and negotiated the tangled mess of crevasses where the ice barrier swept around these obstacles between the interior and the sea. Crevasse falls characterised their progress, with Feather gaining considerable esteem in the eyes of his officers for the patient manner in which he awaited rescue, hanging by his sledging harness in one icy moor, or allowing his companions to lower him into another where he would painstakingly dismantle a sledge load to allow their stores and transport to be retrieved piecemeal. The team laid Depot A at Minna Bluff and headed back to the ship. On their return, Kurtlitz told Scott the crew were experiencing symptoms of scurvy. Both Kurtlitz and Nansen still thought scurvy was caused by microbes in bad meat, colouring Scott's thinking on the matter for years to come, but also leading to the same fresh seal meat solution arrived at on the Belgica. The scurvy scare gave the crew another Antarctic shake-up, but they thought they'd licked the problem without actually understanding what the problem was, offering a false confidence that scurvy lay entirely in their past. On the 1st of November, the Great Southern Journey got underway, when a support party, man-hauling supplies, left the ship for the barrier. Scott and the main body, using dogs, left the ship the following day, catching up the support party just south of White Island. With the dogs pulling well, the southern parties carried on until, at 79 degrees south, Scott sent Barn back with instructions to investigate suspected gaps in the Victoria Land coast to determine whether the mountain ranges visible in McMurdo Sound comprised island landmasses or a possible continental range. In hindsight, this decision reads as premature, but Scott always seemed to bank on conditions favouring his goals. He couldn't know that poor weather would truncate Barn's efforts, and that the dogs would soon cease to pull well, forcing reliance on people for the bulk of the hauling and badly denting the distances they could make each day. 
sent back too soon to give the Southern Party the full possible support, and too late to make a thorough examination of the mountains, Barn returned to the ship. Several authors think the dogs lost some of their oomph based on a fish meal dog food they carried on Nansen's recommendation. While it suited Nansen's dogs just fine in his Arctic projects, no one previously carried it through the tropics, and it may have gone bad during the transit. On the 9th of December, one of the dogs died, and the corpse was quickly consumed by the other dogs. Dog, full of the protein, vitamins and minerals a dog needs. At 80 degrees 30 minutes south, they laid Depot B. On the 22nd of December, with 14 of the 19 dogs remaining, but pulling poorly, Wilson noted symptoms of scurvy in Shackleton. Shackleton experienced a persistent cough for much of the journey south, but now the swollen limbs and blotchy skin became too obvious to ignore. On Christmas Day, Shackleton surprised his companions with a small Christmas pudding carried south secretly in his personal effects. This cheered the team considerably, but with all hands showing some signs of scurvy, Shackleton rapidly deteriorating, and their food and fuel stocks running dangerously low, they recognised they were nearing their limit. On the 28th of December, at 82 degrees, 5.5 minutes south, Scott and Wilson made Shackleton comfortable in a camp, and skied south. Free of the sledge load, they reached the furthest south of any human to that point. I see this reported variously as 82 degrees and 11 minutes, 16 minutes and 17 minutes south. Whatever the exact distance, poor visibility limited their view to the south and they thought they stood at the entrance to an inlet. In clearer weather they could have sighted the Nunatek piercing the ice that would have revealed the inlet as a glacier. Lacking this insight, Scott and Wilson turned north, thinking the barrier continued to the pole. The return journey constituted a miserable scramble back to the ship. Shackleton began coughing up blood. Wilson experienced severe snow blindness, a form of sunburn to the cornea, and often hauled with his head bandaged, saving his eyesight for making drawings of landmarks, but aggravating his gradually increasing lameness with each vision-impaired stumble. Scott, the least scurvy-affected of the trio, constantly worried at their daily mileage. A sail rigged on the sledge to take advantage of the prevailing tailwind didn't provide much oomph. The seven remaining dogs barely contributed to the hauling, but Scott refused to kill them, considering the cruelty beyond him, in spite of the opportunity to lighten the sledge by offloading the dog food. Instead, the dogs gradually fell in their tracks, left behind to fall asleep and die alone. Scott's distaste for taking a direct hand in killing animals, in itself, leading to greater, indirectly caused suffering, echoes into his subsequent Antarctic foray. The party made it to Depot B on the 13th of January, offering some relief, but daily the distances covered diminished. The two remaining dogs were killed and the dog food offloaded. Two weeks later, they reached Minna Bluff and Depot A, but they were all going downhill fast health-wise. By the 30th of January, Shackleton was spent. Unable to help Hall for several days already, he could no longer carry himself. Scott and Wilson loaded him onto the sledge and carried on. The southern party arrived at the Discovery on the 3rd of February. 
A new southern record established, but those who set it physically shattered, and Shackleton close to dead. While Scott and company struggled back across the barrier, the relief ship, Morning, under the command of William Colbeck, arrived, and Lieutenant Armitage blotted his copybook with the crew quite badly. Some backtracking is required to give all of this some context. While Scott was leading the southern journey, aiming for the pole, Armitage led a party to explore Victoria land. Working up the Blue Glacier and onto the Ferrar Glacier, the party was plagued by poor weather and health complaints. Everyone fell down crevasses, and mountainous dead ends caused days of setbacks. On the 1st of January, 1903, at 7,500 feet above sea level, with everyone suffering altitude sickness from the rapid rise into the mountains, Petty Officer William McFarlane experienced a heart attack. Armitage split the group and carried on inland, reaching a height of 9,000 feet above sea level on the 5th of January. At their furthest extent, a small team reached 20 miles onto the Polar Plateau, the first people to stand on the top of the bottom of the world. With gravity assisting progress on the return, the party reached the discovery on the 19th of January. Jumping back in time even further, Sir Clements Markham began angling to get the expedition a second winter in the south in May 1902. In July that year, Prime Minister Robert Arthur Talbot Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquis of Salisbury, resigned due to failing health and despair at the death of his wife, to be replaced by his nephew, Arthur Balfour, previously the Chancellor of the Exchequer, whose parliamentary funding helped pay for the expedition. But no further government funds were forthcoming from Arthur. William Colbeck, a lieutenant in the Royal Navy Reserve, sailed aboard the Southern Cross under Borkrevink. His Antarctic experience saw him appointed as captain of the relief ship, Morning, which sailed from England in July 1902, with orders to resupply the Discovery and assist in any subsequent coastal surveying that Scott deemed appropriate on the return journey, both ships being expected in Littleton by March 1903. Members of both the Royal Society and the Royal Geographic Society suspected Colbeck carried secret orders from Markham instructing Scott to remain on base for a second winter, but while this would be entirely consistent with Sir Clement's MO, no evidence of such a machination has come to light. It's a moot point, given the ice conditions in McMurdo Sound in the 1902-1903 summer season. The morning reached Cape Adair on the 8th of January 1903, and collected the first cache of messages laid in by the Discovery a year prior. Ice prevented the morning reaching Coolman Island or Wood Bay, and they found no message at Franklin Island, leaving Cape Crozier the final mailbox on the appointed list of waypoints. Arriving at Cape Crozier on the 18th of January, the landing party took several hours to find the tin of messages cached by Charles Royds the previous October, but the information therein guided Colbeck to the Hut Point headquarters. Someone at Hut Point sighted the morning on the 23rd of January, and on the 24th, the ship lay up against the sea ice that still extended seven miles to the north. Armitage and Skelton travelled out to greet their relief, but to Skelton's consternation and disgust, Armitage refused to return to the Discovery with the much-anticipated mail. Royds, left in charge at Hut Point, fielded the brunt of crew frustrations over the delay. Locked into the south for over a year, 
People burnt with anticipation of news from the outside world, but Armitage bedded in on the morning and refused to budge. Discontent over this incident lingered, and Scott's return on the 3rd of February, spent as he was, reminded the crew how harmoniously their lives ran when under his occasionally mercurial but usually cohesive leadership. Scott often spoke in haste and with venom when vexed, and many of the crew felt the burn of his sharp retorts, but no one ever doubted he had their best interest as his highest priority. If Scott was on deck when the relief ship arrived, the crew would have received their mail within the day. With the Discovery still locked into its embayment, the crews began transferring stores from the morning across the sea ice. On the 22nd of February, explosives, this time in the form of gun cotton, were applied in an attempt to break the ice out in order to follow the orders delivered by Colbeck, but this met with little success. With the departure of the morning imminent and a second winter at Hut Point increasingly likely, Scott sought volunteers he could send north to ease the load on their existing stores. Clarence Hare headed home to New Zealand, though he rejoined Discovery in June 1904 for the voyage back to England, and McFarlane's heart condition prompted his extraction. Additionally, Scott selected the laziest and most fractious elements of the mess deck, Page, Hubert, Duncan, Buckridge, and the ship's misanthropic cook, Brett, for volunteer service. Shackleton felt desperate to stay on, but, on medical advice from Kurtlitz and Wilson, concerned regarding his slow recovery after the southern journey, Scott ordered he leave. Much is made of this moment, with authors and pundits citing acrimony arising between Scott and Shackleton on the barrier as the cause. Armitage in particular, though only after everyone involved was long dead, claimed Scott deliberately sought to expunge those who put at risk Scott's prestige, but the claims are unsupported beyond Armitage's words. Yes, this was a defining moment in Shackleton's life, which fueled his ambitions to return to prove his mettle, and yes, harsh words were likely exchanged in the close quarters and trying conditions experienced on the southern journey, but neither Scott nor Shackleton wrote of this moment as anything other than unfortunate. The animus Armitage draws up in his accounts of the dynamic between Scott and Shackleton is, I think, largely a mirror for his own feelings. After Shackleton's death, Armitage quoted Scott as saying of Shackleton at this juncture, If he does not go back sick, he will go back in disgrace. But I'm not buying it. The southern journey turned back when it ran out of food. Shackleton's health did impact on how far they reached, but it wasn't the limiting factor that prevented their reaching the pole, which they missed by a return journey of over 800 miles. Where Armitage and Scott got along well in the preparations for the expedition, their time on the ice saw them lose respect for one another. Adding to the friction between them, gossip of a scandal involving Armitage's wife reached several members of the expedition, including Scott. Concerned that his second-in-command should be given an opportunity to address matters at home, but queasy about giving voice to the rumours, Scott invited Armitage to head north with the morning. Armitage took umbrage. He found the invitation, without the context behind it, insulting, perceiving it as an attempt to purge the expedition of all merchant officers. Armitage stayed on. On the 3rd of March, with Shackleton despairing his lot, the morning headed north so as to not risk being frozen in. Scott examined the ice conditions and weather to see if any opportunity to follow would arise. None did, and the discovery remained at Hut Point for a second winter.
Shackleton returned home to a hero's welcome, but his disappointment over his infirmity and the passion for Antarctica that the Discovery Expedition awakened in him wound up some powerful clockwork in the man, and I suspect anyone listening to this series will already know we'll be hearing of him in several future episodes of Ice Coffee. Louis Bernacchi took on Shackleton's duties with the South Polar Times, and Shackleton's replacement from the morning, 3rd Lieutenant George Mulock, Royal Navy Surveyor, plotted the survey data, the resulting charts providing much valuable insight for the next season's sledging journeys. With several malcontents gone and better food arising from the efforts of replacement cook Charles Clark, the winter passed, if anything, in slightly better morale than the previous one. In the early spring, Royds and Bernacchi made an unsupported sledge journey to the east to examine whether the ice barrier lay over land or water. They approached the problem by lowering thermometers into crevasses. Exempting geothermal anomalies, low temperatures were anticipated if the ice lay over cold-soaked land. Underlying seawater, only remaining liquid above negative 2 degrees Celsius, would cause an inverse temperature gradient in the crevasses, with the warmest measurements occurring at the deepest depths. This turned out to be the case. The barrier, in all its France-sized vastness, is afloat. Royds also headed back to Cape Crozier, leading a team of six, including Edward Wilson, to look for penguin eggs, though they arrived too late in the breeding season to find any of value in addressing Wilson's nascent questions about emperor penguin embryology. Barn revisited Minna Bluff, offering an opportunity to compare the bearings of landmarks relative to the Bluff Depot on two occasions separated by 13 months. By Barn's calculations, the barrier ice moved 608 yards between the two visits. Scott needed everyone back at Discovery early enough in the summer season to ensure every effort could be made to free the ship. This limitation precluded a second attempt on the pole, but Armitage bridled. He wanted an opportunity to best the previous summer's effort, and saw the injunction against the attempt as Scott protecting his legacy. Instead, the main drive of the summer comprised a return to the west, to see if a path to the South Magnetic Pole lay open beyond the path Armitage pioneered the previous summer. With no dogs to help pull, and the sledges gradually deteriorating, the journey was hard slogging. Leaving Ferrar and two seamen on the western shore of McMurdo Sound to geologise, the main party headed up the Ferrar Glacier. They made good progress, but were plagued by sustained repercussions of equipment losses due to carelessness. A strong wind blew away some sleeping bags, socks, finesco and skeleton's goggles, but the worst loss in the parcel of unsecured equipment was the group's only copy of Notes to Travellers. This book, published by the Royal Geographic Society, held the logarithm and declination tables necessary to convert sextant readings into position corrections. Without these, Scott could only rely on dead reckoning for his navigation, and no surveying could take place. On the bare, icy plateau described by Armitage, this would make their path back difficult, perhaps impossible to determine, but Scott determined to press on. Using existing data from previous sextant shots, Scott plotted sun declinations on a grid he drew into his diary with a ruler. Applying a freehand curve between the points, Scott made a reference against which he could calculate latitude using subsequent sextant sites of the sun. Hardly a precise method, but a method. They left the depot by a nunatek where a gale hit them hard. 
The polished glacial ice precluded erecting tents. They found some snow, but it was also hard and required a lot of spade work to get the tents erected, everyone suffering some frost damage in the struggle. Using an aneroid barometer to gauge their height above sea level, Scott determined they must be approaching Armitage's furthest west on the 13th of November. With no firm grasp of position, relative height was the best comparative measure, but barometric pressure makes a weak proxy as the pressure at sea level varies, as does the vertical barometric profile. Again, it wasn't a precise method, but it was a method. Skelton, Seaman Jesse Hansley and William Lashley could barely keep up with Scott's team with their larger sledge holding them back. Skelton advised they split the party, but Scott wasn't keen. Two days later, Scott sent Skelton, Hansley and Featherback, carrying on with Taffy Evans and Lashley, two of the hardest men the expedition could field. These three carried on with a turnaround date set at the 30th of November. They found it hard going on the plateau, with large sastrugi slowing their progress and an absolute dearth of geography to report. No views of faraway coasts, no dramatic mountain ranges, just ice as far as the snow-blinded eye could discern. Turning back, the trio faced 17 days marching on 14 days food using 12 days worth of stove fuel. Once again, Scott based his plans on everything outside his control working to his benefit. This time, there was absolutely no leeway, and a blizzard could mean the end of all three of them. Often, Scott's worst moods and brooding silences coincided with the frustration generated by externally imposed idleness, and any day's march lost the blizzards, dented Scott's morale badly. The descent took them through densely packed crevasse fields, and each of them ended up hanging in their traces, each subsequent climb back into the sunlight taking more out of them. On one occasion, Scott, Evans and the sledge ended up hanging from the line that Lashley anchored at the crevasse lip, but they were making progress homeward. On the 18th of December, on a detour taken down the northern outlet of the glacier in hopes of sighting McMurdo Sound and assessing the sea ice conditions, the trio made the first sighting of Antarctica's dry valleys. A splendid place for growing spuds was Lashley's laconic assessment of what later came to be known as the Taylor Valley. Back on the path, the team reached the Cathedral Rocks depot, finally sighting the sound and seeing the ice still firmly in place. On their return to the Discovery on Christmas Day, 1903, they found only four on board, the rest of the crew working under Armitage at the ice edge to the north. Armitage employed the 18-foot-long ice saws, operated using pulleys on tall tripods, to try to cut a channel in the 7-foot-thick ice. With only 174 yards of progress after weeks of effort and 20 miles still to go, I'm unsure if Armitage was dutiful or petulant in sticking to his orders for as long as he did in light of the obvious futility. But when Scott arrived, he pulled the pin sharpish, much to the relief of the frustrated and disheartened Sawyers. Armitage's choice to carry on with the project as long as he did certainly did his standing with the crew no favours. As the soaring teams headed back to the ship, Scott camped out at Cape Royds with Edward Wilson, Taffy Evans and William Lashley. He tasked Evans and Lashley with laying in supplies of penguins and seals in case a third winter lay in store, while Wilson geologised and made penguin rookery notes and drawings. 
lying in their tent on the morning of the 5th of January 1904, staring at the sound through the open tent door. Scott spotted a ship. The morning. Just as it caught his eye, Wilson, standing outside, announced he could see two ships. What the fuck? Scott sent Evans and Lashley back to the Discovery with orders that Armitage should send out a sledge to collect the mail, but the second ship had Scott spooked as he and Wilson made their way onto the sea ice to make contact. Sure enough, one of them was the morning, again captained by William Colbeck. The other was the Terra Nova, and the reason for its presence was clearly defined in the letter from the Admiralty that Colbeck bore for Scott. Scott was to abandon the discovery if not freed of the ice by the time the morning and the Terra Nova needed to sail north. The morning was a relief ship. The Terra Nova was a rescue ship. Scott's naval superiors were recalling him in a manner that tacitly called into question his competence. The origins of this slight against Scott largely lay, albeit indirectly, with Sir Clements Markham. In begging funding to pay out the debts accruing from the extra year spent in Antarctica, Sir Clements played up the peril angle, bemoaning the icy fate awaiting the crew of the Discovery if not provided with sound external support. This display of vulnerability, quickly pounced upon by Markham's opponents among the Royal Society and the Admiralty, gave many of those bullied by or blustered at by the RGS President their chance to shit-can the project. The Treasury released funds for the relief and rescue ships on the condition they sail under naval command. The Admiralty now headed the expedition, bringing Markham's bullying, backstabbing reign to an end. On Scott's return to the Discovery, 35-pound gun cotton charges were applied in series to encourage the sea ice to depart. The spectacular explosions did loosen large sheets of ice, but the Discovery remained beset. On the 10th of February, Scott conceded the need to abandon ship. The carpenter set about making the crates and cases needed to transfer stores and equipment, and Scott sent a final order to Colbeck, advising his intention. Over a melancholy dinner that night, the wardroom heard someone on high shout that they could see the ice breaking out. A final 66-pound gun-cotton charge loosed the final ice noose, and the discovery floated free in her embayment. They bunkered coal from the Terra Nova, and Scott experienced elation at dodging the bullet that a ship lost under his command would likely constitute to his career prospects. With the boiler long out of service, Scott declined Skelton's request that they get up steam as quickly as possible, but a sudden change in the weather made this imperative. The morning and Terra Nova headed north to get clear of the lee shore hut point presented in the gale, but the discovery couldn't make way sufficient to avoid going aground on a sandbar. After two years trapped in the ice, the ship travelled a few hundred metres and got stuck again, with the bonus peril of a swell lifting the hull and dropping it on the hard over and over again. With steam up, Skelton asked that they go slow ahead, but the order came through as full ahead, which made the grounding, and therefore the pounding, worse. The engine inlets choked on ice. The situation looked well shabby. Ship routine carried on, with the surreal motion and cacophony of their imminent doom working through every board and spar. While the wardroom sat down to a fraught meal, the wind and tide shifted and the ship worked itself astern off the bar to the relief of all, but the peril was not yet at an end. Making way north, the Discovery joined the morning and bunkered a further 25 tonnes of coal, but with the weight of the fuel, the water already in the bilges after the sandbar incident 
and more water-making inroads in the worsening weather, the discovery was still in deep trouble. The pumps stopped working. The inlets choked. As the water rose up, the engine fires needed drawing down to prevent boiler damage should the problem get worse. Superheated steam and ice-cold water don't mix well. Someone fired up the forecastle donkey engine and ran the pumps from it sufficiently well that the ship stayed intact and afloat. The Discovery got up steam once more. Pack ice along the western shore of the Ross Sea, forcing the ship to work its way far out into the east, prevented a close survey of the Victoria Land coast. The Discovery cleared the pack ice on the 29th of February and turned west to explore the northern coast of Victoria Land. The Discovery spent five days traversing west, but running short on coal and making no new discoveries, only eliminating Ross's Russell Islands and Wilkes, Elds Peak and Ringgold's Knoll from the charts for their non-existence, they turned north for the Auckland Islands. There, at Port Ross, the crew overhauled the Discovery to naval standards before heading on to Littleton. On the way home to England, a final set of magnetic observations made at the Falkland Islands routed out the science program. While knocked off his throne metaphorically, though not officially, by his rivals, Markham still wielded considerable influence and worked hard to ensure recognition for the expedition's achievements and for Scott's promotion. He cited the sledging journeys, particularly those without dog teams, as unparalleled in all past exploration and prepared a tremendous greeting party for the expedition's arrival. The discovery arrived at Spithead, Portsmouth, on the 10th of September 1904. Scott received notice of his promotion to captain that same day, and began what turned into a full year of dinners, receptions and lectures. The nation went gaga for Scott and his polar pioneers. Even those who previously tried to thwart Sir Clement's ambitions came out with congratulations, with Arthur Balfour even attempting to pose as the father of the expedition, to Markham's considerable disgust, and Admiral Wharton suggested medals. The King agreed and instituted the changes that saw the Arctic Medal become the Polar Medal, with the new form of the old gong going out to all hands on the Discovery, the Morning and the Terranova. The King also raised Scott to commander of the Victorian Order. The Royal Geographic Society struck a special gold medal for his achievements and awarded him their patron's gold medal. More medals than he could poke a stick at rolled in from Philadelphia, New York, the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, wherein Shackleton now presided as secretary, the French Legion d'Honneur, Sweden and Berlin. Scott wrote a book about the expedition and sold out two print runs, running to four and a half thousand copies, briefly easing some of his financial concerns over the upkeep of his mother and sisters. Armitage published his own account, which also sold well. Gradually, Scott's rigorous schedule of travel and meetings wound down and he returned to the doldrums of his regular naval career, this time as assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence, though the Antarctic never left his imagination, and, as was the case for many of the crew of the Discovery, a return visit lay in his future. The science carried out on the expedition received mixed reviews. Bernanke's reports on the magnetic observations and his calculation of the movement of the South Magnetic Pole in the time since the Erebus and Terra visited the area received high praise. Royd's meteorological observations, on the other hand, featuring many slipshod notes and which caused such confusion at the meteorological office that they misinterpreted true bearings as being magnetic, leading to badly flawed attempts to integrate the results with those of the concurrent Swedish and German expeditions, received much censure. 
Royds admitted to being out of his depth with the complicated instruments the expedition required he learn to use at two removes from the experts, but Scott would not hear a word against his team and called for an official inquiry into the matter. The Royal Society quietly counselled against this as simply drawing more attention to the problem and Scott, at the time attempting to garner support for his next polar venture, acquiesced. Ferrar's geological samples yielded continental evidence of large plants, though the fossils, outwardly showing little botanical detail, only fully revealed their secrets in 1928 when broken open. Finely preserved Glossopteris indica leaves lay within, a paleobotanical link between the land beneath the ice, Australia, India, New Zealand, Southern Africa and South America. By 1928, this link was already established, but Ferrar's fossils reinforced the story told in the rocks collected on later expeditions. Seaman Ernest Joyce doesn't feature in any of the various narratives recounted here, and he barely receives mention in the diaries of those who do. He seems to have kept his head down during the Discovery Expedition, but he impressed Scott sufficient to receive his recommendation for promotion to Petty Officer First Class, and impressed Shackleton enough that he sent his secretary chasing after an omnibus to catch up with him to invite him to come south on the ITAE. Errata The main erratum I would like to address this episode is that when I first introduced the errata section, I got so caught up in using trios da-da-da as the introduction to the segment that I conflated errata with addenda, because dumbass. The other is that in episode 27, I mentioned that Ormond House was still in use at Orcada's station. This is not the case. A listener got in touch to inform me of Neil Oliver's documentary about William Spears Bruce, and loaned me their copy of the DVD of the BBC series, The Last Explorers. I enjoyed hearing the story of the SNAE recounted in Neil Oliver's Scottish Brogue, and the episode is visually stunning, but my heart sank on seeing Ormond House. Not only is it derelict, it appears to have been derelict for decades. I blame my romantic side for carrying forward the idea of the centenarian structure operating under Argentine command, from a book I devoured in my childhood. Antarctica is unforgiving, even to romantic notions, and this documentary reminded me to check my facts, even at the risk of denting treasured ideas, and saw me reassessing my previously pompously confident pronunciation of Weddell, which Neil Oliver says as Weddell. An actual addendum this time. I was recently made aware of the Hangar Deck podcast, an aviation podcast out of Maryland in the USA. The hosts bring together a wide range of experience in aviation, and they cover a wide range of topics with their guests. I'm grateful to Anhedral Andy, a fellow contributor at the ARC Scalar Model Forum, who put me onto the series, and to Pitchlock Pete, Fast Eddie, and Jack Screw Jesse, who interviewed me this morning on the topic of Antarctic aviation. The Hangar Deck podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher, and is well worth a listen if you've got even just a passing interest in aviation. That was something of an epic episode, and I apologise if I lost any of you along the way. Perhaps I'll edit in an intermission, and you can go to the lobby and get yourselves some snacks. But as you do, remember to appreciate your coffee. <laughs>